Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our new series, Lessons for the Church, with a message entitled, Welcome to the Church in a Pagan World. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Paul first arrived in Corinth, it's not at all surprising that he would, in his own words, be full of fear and trembling. Even though he had successfully planted churches in his first missionary journey, the challenges he faced in Greece were considerable. He had been beaten with rods in Philippi, and then he was thrown into prison. Next, he went to Thessalonica. A mob riot formed accusing him of advocating customs that were illegal for Romans to accept. Next, he went to Berea, and the rabble from Thessalonica followed and began agitating in that city so that his traveling companions were forced to send Paul out of the city. And from there, he went to Athens, and there the reaction had been more peaceful. Some mocked, some believed, some were willing to have further discussions, but the results were limited. And it is in this series of events still fresh in his experience that he arrives in Corinth with fear and trembling, he says. The city was the commercial center of Greece, some 250,000 people, which by ancient standards would have been a mega city. It was wealthy, it was sex-obsessed, and proud to be Roman. And yet Paul remained there for 18 months. He worked as a tent maker to make ends meet, and then, as was his custom, he went to the Jewish synagogue and initially found that ministry encouraging. A man named Crispus, he was the synagogue leader, was converted, praise God for that, And then at least from my reading of the account, it seems that Crispus' replacement, a man named Sosthenes, also believed, but the synagogue finally united against Paul and threw him out. One can only imagine the memory of riots, of stoning and beating with rods and imprisonment. Paul must have dreaded another such reaction. But then something marvelous happened. The Lord gave him a vision. Don't be afraid were the key words. Preach with boldness because no one will attack you to do you physical harm in this city. And then came some more marvelous words. I'm reading from Acts 18.10. God says, I have many in this city who are my people. Now, of course, the city had not yet heard the gospel, but God was indicating that he had already chosen his own who would respond. And respond they did. And when it seemed like a riot would occur in Corinth, a Gentile, The proconsul or the chief judicial officer in the city shut that riot down. And so time was given to build a church. And during this time, Paul had come to love the new believers that made up this church. But after Paul left, imagine what might have occurred. It soon became known that Corinth had a Christian church, and that attracted teachers, and some were no doubt excellent, and some were false prophets. And the church becomes confused. And meanwhile, Paul has moved on to Ephesus, back on the Asian peninsula. And from there, he receives a report that not all is well in the Corinthian church. There are divisions among them that threaten their unity. Sexual immorality is reported. Legal problems, marriage issues, issues regarding the nature and boundaries of Christian freedom. False teachings are circulating regarding the resurrection of Jesus and so forth. And Paul writes to help a church that has lost its way. Perhaps slowly, perhaps rapidly, they have been lured by their culture and had fallen back to ways of living that looked more like Corinthian culture than it ever looked like Jesus' culture. And that's the reason Paul writes this letter. He's concerned they do not lose their way. In that sense, this Corinthian letter is for all God's people who so easily forget 
what the church is about or what they are about. And it's for the church in Canada, as so many of us have lost our way. So what do you say to a church that has lost its way? Do you become angry just blasting away at them for all the wrong that they're doing? Now, have you noticed that's the easiest thing to do? How easy it is to criticize and to point out what's wrong. I love what Charles Spurgeon said on this matter. He said, the church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church and let us do the same, he said. And that's exactly the attitude we see in Paul. Yes, he will become direct, pointed, and demand repentance, and in one case, even demand they excommunicate one individual. But what pervades this letter is love and careful instruction and a willingness not to give up on them. I think we're ready to start reading the letter. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, this is a fairly standard introduction in Paul's letters. Like any personal letter, as in the days when we actually used to write them, remember that, by snail mail? Letters all used to have a formal beginning. They always began, Dear Bill or Dear Mary, and then at the end of the letter, you'd sign your name. You'd say, Sincerely, and you'd put your name. But in the case of ancient letters, you'd begin by signing your name at the beginning, which, if you think about it, makes far more sense. But rather than simply putting his name on the top, Paul puts his credentials at the top. Now, why does he do that? Let's see if we can understand his thinking. See, the church is founded on the apostles' authority. And in all his letters, with the exception of Philippians and the two Thessalonian letters, he leads with his credentials. I think the reason he doesn't do that in the three letters I've mentioned is because no one doubted his credentials in Philippi or Thessalonica. But in every other place where one might challenge his authority, he wears his title on his sleeve. And why is that so? Well, look again at how he begins. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle, he says. He's not called by the church. And so he is not beholden to the church. He is called by God. Indeed, Christ not only called him to be saved, he called him to be an apostle. See, Paul did not choose his ministry as a career path. In Galatians, he says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, lest we mistake his point, this is not an attempt to flaunt his position or to pride himself in himself. Paul never did that. In fact, whenever he speaks, it's exactly the opposite. Near the end of 1 Corinthians, listen to what he writes. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. And in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the gospel of Christ. In other words, I'm a servant or a slave. I'm only a manager of someone else's business, and if I am an apostle, and I am, I am the least of them. No, Paul was never one to flaunt his own position. That wasn't in him. So why does Paul begin by making sure the Corinthians remember that he's an apostle? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. First of all, he wants them to know that being an apostle was not his idea, it was God's. God had called him. Paul had other ideas for his life. He was rising in the ranks of Judaism. He was gaining a reputation as a great leader. He had marshaled an impressive list of credentials behind his name. And Christ had appeared to him and simply called him. That was the first thing he stresses. Secondly, the apostolic authority that he claims is unique, never to be repeated. 
In Ephesians, he will call the apostles the foundation of the church. Like any building, the foundation is laid only once. No future generation will have living apostles. And thirdly, with apostleship came authority to write scripture, to lay the doctrinal foundation for the church, and this from Christ. Paul wants them to know, I didn't think this up. This was called by Christ, but you should know that I am most unlike all the teachers you've had passing through Corinth. I am an apostle chosen by Christ. Now, I need to stop here and make application. Today's church is as governed by apostles as was the early church. The written record of their teachings and instructions form our New Testament. Wherever a local church will not bow to the authority of the apostles, which in our case are the 27 books of the New Testament, she will not bow to the authority of the God who called the apostles, and that church ceases to be an authentic church. You see why this is so important? Who we are as a church is determined by apostolic authority. We are under the authority of God's word. Now, I know how tempting it is to let the church descend into the realm of human opinion. Here's what I think about sexual ethics. Here's what I think about marriage. Here's what I think about the resurrection of the dead and so forth. Everyone in Corinth had an opinion. And those opinions had been shaped by the culture in which they lived and the opinions of the many ministries that had made their way through their town. Here's the application. Look, you have a right to think whatever you want about anything you want. But then you can't be the church and not be bound by the authority of the apostles. The church of Jesus is founded upon apostolic authority, and that determines our life. So Paul begins his letter doing that which is customary for him. He makes much of the fact that the church is founded on the apostles and now that the church belongs to God. Notice now the beginning of verse 2. To the church that is in Corinth. That word church, ecclesia, is a word that simply means an assembly. To the assembly of God at Corinth. There were, of course, other assemblies in the city, man-made organizations created to serve a number of needs. Throughout Corinth, there would have been trade guilds that assembled to promote their industry. Citizen assemblies would have dealt with political concerns and so forth. But each one was a human organization. And when we come back, we will see why the church is different than any other human organization. This introduction to the opening verses of Paul's letter is certainly revealing and insightful on many levels. I think we can see parallels in our own day to some of the issues that the church in Corinth was facing. As well, we can appreciate the universal, timeless foundations of the true Christian church that the Apostle lays out so clearly. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will explain further what makes the church so unique and how this sets the tone for the rest of the book. Now's the time to place the gathering in your calendar. Join us online via Facebook Live this coming Sunday, September 19th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 Central or 8 Eastern for a celebration of God's faithfulness. Be blessed by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld as we investigate Psalm 138. Enjoy host Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and be inspired and blessed by special musical guest Laura Hastings as we worship, fellowship, and celebrate God's Word together. For more information about the gathering and to ensure you're in the right spot at the right time, visit backtothebible.ca slash gathering or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Join friends and the family of God at the gathering from right across the country for an hour of celebrating God's faithfulness together this Sunday, September 19th. 
Look forward to seeing you there. There are many human assemblies in this world, but the Church of God claims to be the exclusive assembly of the living God. God birthed the church and God determines the life of his church. The point, of course, is that the church has a divine and not a human origin. The church does not exist because of human organization or human plans or fine marketing schemes or anything like that. Every true church, wherever you find it, in any city in the world, exists because God put it there. God birthed it, God created it, God caused it to be, and God has infused his purpose into it. Now, that's quite a thought. To the church of God located in the city of Corinth. Let's keep reading. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So we are beginning to gain an understanding of the apostle's mindset. For him, the church is founded on apostolic authority, brought into existence by God, and also made holy by Christ. I know that some of us have a notion of saints as those individuals who have lived an extraordinarily holy life, the spiritual elite in the Christian community, if you will. And in some systems of theology, you can address a dead saint from years ago and ask him or her to go on your behalf and ask God for stuff. And so you have a patron saint of desperate causes, that, by the way, is St. Jude, or a patron saint of pregnant women, that's St. Anne, or this is one I love, the patron saint of stuttering, who is noctar balbulas. I can hardly say that without stuttering. Or the patron saint of education or of business, or the saints over your country, while there are over 10,000 of these. And some of us, when we hear saints, well, we quite naturally think of one of those. But the Bible in general, and Paul in particular, never uses the word that way. In fact, he doesn't use the word sanctified or saint, which comes from the same root, to speak about the moral character of people, but rather about their identity. Here's what he says. You, the church, which means by implication that you are the sanctified ones, set apart by God to be his people, and you have received a call. So, Paul thinks that every person who is a Christian is a saint. And that's phenomenal. This messy group of people in Corinth who have gotten so much wrong, who've sinned a lot, and have compromised with the world, have been called saints. And herein is a great mystery how God could take these ragtag, ordinary, ornery, mundane, crazy people and call them saints. For that matter, how could he call you that? The answer lies somewhere in the mystery of the cross what we are when we surrender our lives to Christ and what we are when we become a part of the church is something sacred and holy and special and set apart by God. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus and become a part of his church, God has chosen you to be a saint. Well, let's keep reading. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let's review what Paul has said about the church. Founded upon apostolic authority, created by God, called to be saints, and now unified with every other believer in every other place. Now, there's a technical word for that. It's the word Catholic. And when I say Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. That refers to a branch of the Christian faith that believes that the universal head of the church ought to reside in Rome under the leadership of the Pope. But the word Catholic, without the prefix Roman simply means universal. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are the church in Corinth who form an assembly of believers in that city, 
but you take your place along with all others who also call upon the name of the Lord. And we should see the implications behind this. First, one church does not take precedence over another. No one church is the center of God's witness in the world, but simply a constituent part of a global witness. We're bound together in this world with everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation. And I would add a matter here. Our first loyalty on this earth is to the people of God. Look, I'm a Canadian, and I'm deeply thankful to be a citizen of this country. But my loyalty is to Christ and the people of God ahead of my loyalty to my country. I have far more in common with an Iranian believer who calls Jesus Lord and Savior than I have with a fellow Canadian who will not bend the knee to Christ. The true unity of believers is a unity which transcends every other loyalty I might hold. And second, the church of Jesus consists of the living and the dead. Some of you may remember the old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. One verse reads as follows, Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above, the church on earth and heaven. This is a biblical sentiment. We are still, as believers in Canada, one assembly with saints who were at one time in Corinth, but who now worship before the throne. There is but one body. Why is Paul stressing this? And the answer has everything to do with how easily this church adopted the culture of Corinth rather than the culture of Jesus. And the same needs to be said of the Canadian church today. Our culture is the culture of Jesus. Our loyalty is to Jesus and his people, and our authority will be to the word of God. It is for this reason that I love an ancient letter. It's come down to us from the second century A.D., in which a Christian teacher who uh, did not name himself explains the relationship that Christians will have to the culture around them. Here's what this unnamed Christian teacher said. He said, Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. They do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their citizenship. For like citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are present in the flesh but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet gain glory. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. And when they do good, they are punished as evildoers, and when punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. To put it simply, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. Well said. I think that quote ought to be remembered by many. We are, in one sense, so much like the culture, but in another sense, we're not like it even in the least. And that is exactly what Paul says in his opening words. Later, he'll use words like, Consider your calling. But for now, Paul contents 
himself to call them saints, and an assembly of those who were created by God. He says, act like it. And then before he launches the letter, he adds one more sentence. Verse 3 reads, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace always there in Paul's letters. Grace comes from Christ who gave his life for us. Peace comes as a result of the grace that has come our way. And that's who you are, says Paul. And by the way, this is our challenge. Can we adopt the Jesus culture in our day? Can we be the church of the living Savior in a pagan world? Can we really look and act the same and yet so differently? And as we study this letter, we're going to find out how. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's been so easy to criticize the church that you have created by the blood of your own Son. And Lord, in all the critical words that we have given, we'd like to repent of that. Because clearly all the things that we're critical of others for, we are also guilty ourselves. Father, would you revive us in our day? Would we begin to look and act and and believe and say things that are more like the very kind of people you wanted us to be? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, this is a great conversation to have, and I think maybe the church is struggling with it a bit. What do you think are some of the great cultural risks we have as the church? Yeah, of course, we always, and there's never a change in the battle that we face. We're always going to have to face a culture that we live in and try to distinguish ourselves as the people of God in that culture. Now, I think that there are differences between us and Corinth, but let me also say that many of the issues that the Corinthians faced, I mean, the the raucous nature of their fellowship, always being torn apart from each other, that's an issue that we face today. I mean, how do you keep the Christian church together in a culture such as ours where we prize independent thinking and we tend to downplay the value of being together and thinking with one mind? I'll talk about that tomorrow. But I think there's other things as well. I mean, the, the sexual issues that made up Corinth are our issues as well. I mean, the theological differences that they have. I mean, I can't imagine how many theological differences there are in our church. So in many ways, just simply reading the Corinthian letters is like reading something that's very contemporary today. So I don't have to do a lot of work at applying this book to our own situation. Thanks very much, John. You know, in the very beginning of this letter to the Corinthians, we really grasp the importance of what the Church of Christ is called to do, to stand firm under the authority of God and His Word and not adopt the pagan culture around us. Paul's words also seem to imply the necessity of being part of a local church as a, as a believer because that's how we can influence culture as one unified body. I hope this message has been a blessing to you, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Lessons for the Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church and builds the kingdom. We believe the church is essential to God's people. And in uncertain days, your prayers and support of the church is critical as God uses it to advance the gospel. To encourage and equip God's people, we're offering Dr. Newfeld's new series, Lessons for the Church, on CD for free. So we encourage you to stand with your local congregation. Be engaged with its ministry. For more information or to order your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.